Let me see you put them up. Reach the skies, touch the stars up above. Cause it's one time for the underdog. I'm Patrick Bedevi, host of Active, and today's guest is Tony Wayne, former U.S. ambassador to Mexico and U.S. ambassador to Argentina. We're going to talk about trade war and the border. Tony, thanks for being a guest on Bayutainment. It's great to be with you, Patrick. Yes, good to have you. So, Tony, as somebody who was a former ambassador yourself to Mexico, what, what is your take on all these things that's going on with U.S. and Mexico tariffs? We're not going to do tariffs. We're going to do tariffs. What are your thoughts on that? Well... It's an opportunity to learn how important Mexico is to the United States. I mean, that's one thing that strikes you when you've been, when I've been following this for the past couple of years. I mean, we trade one million dollars a minute with Mexico. Per minute. Per minute. We have a million crossings of the border every day. We have a, a relationship across that 2,000 mile border that means that Mexico is a country that touches the lives of more Americans than any other country every day, each day. And people don't really understand that until you get into a crisis. Mm. And then you see how much we need to work together to solve the problems that are there and to maintain all the important benefits we're getting in this relationship. So what is your interpretation of what President Donald Trump's challenge is with the border? Well, there are a couple different challenges at the border across, of course. There are the migrants that's from Central America who have been coming. That is a real challenge. It okay. is an emergency. They've started coming in family units in unprecedented numbers, and they've surprised everybody by how many are coming. Sure. Now, we can talk about the reasons for that, but we do need to have a better management of it, and we just can't absorb that many. Neither can Mexico, which is part of the reason why they're coming through. They've overwhelmed their capacity also. Secondly, we have a problem of the drug trafficking that does take place across the border. And we have the profits from that trafficking that go back to Mexico, often in the form of guns that they bought to take back to be used by the cartels in Mexico. The profits of the trafficking that they do in U.S., they get the money from here and that goes back to Mexico. Is that, that what does, you're saying? That does. So they, the estimates are they make 19 to 29 30 billion dollars a year selling those drugs in the united states then a lot of that goes back to mexico to the cartels to fuel their operations so that's, 19 to 20 billion that's right and it goes back to mexico and it goes economy. back to mexico and so one of the challenges is handling the illicit commerce in both directions and that means you have to go after supply for sure but you have to go after demand also got it you have to try and bring that demand down in the united states and that's what would be a big help to us because we have all these addiction deaths in the united states which we don't want you've got to do that and then in mexico all this money fuels the violence that they've been plagued by and the rising homicides in that country so so the tariff that president trump put on mexico that was you know taken out fairly quickly. It didn't last a long time. It lasted, I think, the lifespan of the tariff. I don't even know if it was a couple didn't months. Even, didn't even go into Yeah, it didn't effect. even go into effect. So do you think the intention of wanting to have a tariff was to say, because, you know, on the campaign, he said Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Do you think it's his way of saying Mexico paid for the wall? Or do you think it's more of trying to focus on protecting the border, asking Mexico, what can you do 
to fix the immigration problem of coming here. What do you think yourself? Uh, I think he was trying to get Mexico's attention to be better at helping fix the number of migrants headed north. Okay, so it's very simple. You don't think you didn't read into it thinking there's anything more than that. Well, that's why I think he did that. Now okay. he previously also said I'm going to shut the border down, and sometimes in some of his statements he's linked it to drug trafficking also. But basically, he was trying to get attention. I believe this is getting out of hand. Let's fix it. Now the the problem with that tactic is that he also panics a lot of American businessmen and a lot of American consumers. Because we are so dependent on we on building things together. I mean, half of all our trade with Mexico are intermediate goods. They go into a final product either in the United States or Mexico, and then the other half are final things, but they're consumed in both countries. So if you put those, if you actually put those tariffs on, you would be taxing U.S. businesses and U.S. consumers as well as hurting Mexicans. So everybody would really be paying the price. So the bottom line is, it's very good that we did not go on that path. But you still have a lot of business people who are very worried about the unpredictability of this situation. And you know, since you produce and talk to, talk with entrepreneurs all the time, what they crave is knowing the rules, knowing the situation, so they can make their planning, they can invest. They can take their innovative steps if they want to, but they're not going to get knocked around by changes in government rules. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. We were talking to a friend of mine who runs a restaurant. It's a very good-sized restaurant. They do 20 million years, so it's not a small restaurant. And I said, how much is this tariff, this conflict we're having with U.S.-Mexico affecting you? He says, a lot. I said, tell me, more. Tell me what you mean by that. He says, tomatoes, onions. He started getting into this. He says, we feel the pain. He says, because five pennies or even two pennies felt on 20,000 pounds a month that, that that can end up being money. So it's interesting you say that because I know the entrepreneurs are affected by it. So how different is our relationship with Mexico that we had a little bit of a challenge with different than the relationship we have with China? Because there's trade issues going both places. What's the difference between Mexico versus China to you? Well, first, I think Canada and Mexico are, have been our number one and number three export markets. China's number two. China, U.S., uh, Mexico and Canada have been number one. And number two. Because they're neighbors. They're right neighbors, next to us. And then China is right there in between. Got it. Now, Mexico's actually become number one this year because of the problems with China. But the difference, there, there are a couple differences. One is we build things with Canada and Mexico. We don't do that with China. So, for example... A car coming back from Mexico that looks like a Mexican car, really 40% of that car is American product, American input. The car was coming in from China, maybe 4% might be American product. So there's a real difference. And then if it was Canada, 25% or 20%. So the difference is we make things together with our neighbors. We don't do that with China. The other thing is we don't have the problem with intellectual property theft. That, that we have with China with our two neighbors. They respect our, in, our intellectual property. We've had these rules under the, the NAFTA trade agreement since the early 1990s. We've, worked, we've had problems, but we've worked them through. We have a really smooth relationship. And the private sector has built these big networks of trade for lettuce, avocados, mm -hmm. other things, but for cars, for building things together. That's different with China. 
there we do have in some of the high-tech areas in iPhones and other things we do have that kind of uh, relationship but more of that is put together with Chinese products the intellectual property is US intellectual property but that's where you get into the problem of China not respecting intellectual property stealing it right trying to make it turn it into its own industry thus turning it into a, a more of a predatory relationship so it sounds like you are for what President Trump is doing to China right now to got, recut a new deal on the tariffs, whether it has to do with us not having to share our intellectual property with them due to their new Made in China 25 plan that they have. It sounds like you're almost for what he's doing. Well, I'm certainly for dealing forcefully with the Chinese. You are, you are for dealing forcefully with the with, Chinese. To get, their, to get them to pay attention, to change their practices. But what you have to do is you've got to balance that very carefully because there's a lot of pain that comes with this at the same time. Our farmers, for example, lost a lot of markets and the combination of having disputes with Canada, Mexico, and China together hurt the farmers of the United States and the Midwest tremendously. Those were their biggest export oh, markets. Record-breaking bankruptcies that we haven't had for over a decade. That's right. right. You have to measure the tools you're going to use with the costs of using those tools. What does that mean? That means I probably would not have put tariffs as, as large tariffs. I would have looked for other ways to increase pressure. I would have rallied other trading partners with ch to join us in pressuring China. How would you do that? Well, I would do it by uh, working with them to get them and show them what they're losing to. I would have explored, what are you willing to do? We're willing to up these tariffs do this are you willing to do something similar to increase the pressures i would have explored that but doesn't it sound like they don't want to do that coalition well we haven't uh, we haven't really forcefully explored that i think we've gone about this as the u.s versus china now you can do that but there are costs to doing no that. doubt that's about all it. i'm saying what's the worst thing that can happen so so take us to the worst place so we're talking worst place on what could happen between the u.s and china relationship when it comes down to trade well, the worst place is that we pull down a, a, a new shade, not quite an iron curtain, but a trade curtain where our trade goes way down. We have different partners in the rest of the world. We trade with those partners, but it's no longer part of a, of a free-flowing, unified market, and you don't get the benefits of that more free and fair trade. And so that would be, I think, the worst outcome. You sort of move into two different spheres of influence. The best outcome would be we get to an understanding of what the, the best practices are for trade. And, you know, we don't like each other wonderfully, maybe. We disagree on democracy, other practices. But we still have a strong interaction between our economies that builds on the strength of, e of each economy. Do you think it's really going to be a deal where it's going to be 50-50, where both benefits from each other evenly? Or do you think right now, you know, President Trump's trying to strike a deal that's more benefiting U.S. versus it is China? Well, I'm sure he's trying to get the best deal he can, which means he'd like to get more benefit for the U.S. I don't know where it's going to come out, really. Um, but what I do know is the worst outcome would be that we don't solve the problems we sort of divide the world up and we're competing all around the world but we're not solving the differences between us and one of the problems are we are going to have some serious differences on some 
military geostrategic issues in the South China Sea. We're going to have differences over our approach to democracy. Um, it's easier to solve some of those problems if you're not fighting about everything. So if we can get to some understandings on international commerce that are mutually beneficial, I mean, we'll have to figure out, it won't be clear right away, this is 49, you know, 50, 51, or is it 30, 70, we'll see over time. But if we can get to a, a, an understanding and start working that, we will see who's coming out here, how's it working. And then we can turn our attention to other issues versus just fighting about all the issues. Uh, how much are you following the Huawei scandal with uh, Meng in Canada and Ren? Are you following the 5G battle between U.S. US and China? So how, how, how do you feel about the fact that when he signed the executive order, no U.S. company can do business with Huawei, and then Google comes out and cut the contract for their operating system, and now Huawei's projecting that they're going to lose 30 to 40 percent of revenues. How much do you think the fear of China getting 5G before us is the motivation behind us pushing China with their tariffs. Do you see that as possibly being one of the reasons? I don't think that's the main reason for pushing the, the tariffs, but I think it is part of the calculation. And I think what people saw was China had laid out this very ambitious plan over the next decade to build their high-tech capacity. They're moving ahead of us with distributing 5G technology around the world, and the idea was they are doing this unfairly. They're doing it with st some stolen technology with some government subsidies. And so people indeed are quite worried. And they're worried about the, f the fact that Chinese companies have to cooperate with their government on intelligence matters. And so thus, they're worried that Huawei systems can be penetrated by the Chinese government when they're deployed around the world. Now. All those things have to be verified. They have to be looked through. And all of our partners haven't accepted that. And that's part of the debate that's going on internationally. When we go other places and, don't, and say, don't buy Huawei, people say, why not? We give our argument. They said, well, show me. Show me this. And show me how the Chinese are, are using this. And so this is, it's not clear where this is going to come out yet. Um, but clearly, the U.S. government has, has, as you said, has become very worried about Huawei and has launched a, a strong effort, not just China-U.S., but internationally. I, I wonder what's going to happen. I mean, I wonder, okay, so let's just say we strike up a deal and it's a great deal. What is a great deal for U.S. if we were able to get something with China, in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, it would be a verifiable... Um, deal on intellectual property rights. It would look at state subsidies for companies that uh, compete internationally and would have a regulation of that. It would have the, the right to if, if, uh, a dispute settlement mechanism with the right to take retaliatory action uh, if, if, if that settlement results in says yes, you can claim his right. Um, you know, it would be a, a big set of issues. It would not, what it would not be is we're going to buy 50,000 more tons of soy next year. That would be good, but we, what you need are institutional fixes that deal with the bad practices, not just promises of buying more things for a year or two.
Yeah, I, I, again, I'm, I'm really curious what's going to happen with this because it's been going on and it doesn't seem like uh, either side has given in. So we'll see how that's going to end up. Uh, talking about you as an ambassador of Mexico, when you were there, did you, uh, did you have any direct dealings? I would assume you did with Peña Nieto. Yes, President Peña Nieto. And so President, President, President uh, uh, Peña Nieto, I read an article one time about you know, El Chapo saying that New York Times article, matter of fact, I think it was that he got $100 million when you know El Chapo was doing what he was doing. How is he held accountable if that is verified that that happened? What, what do you or what do we, is that a worry for market to say, why is the president of Mexico being paid $100 million by El Chapo, who we know you're talking about the $19 billion of drug trafficking back and forth, and it's not just cocaine, he's doing a lot of different drugs that you're dealing with. Does that concern you at all? And if yes, what are the repercussions to him for being held accountable for that? Well, yes, it is of uh, great concern because we know there is corruption. We know these drug groups buy, buy a lot of officials. They threaten them and pay them. Um, and it, it makes it very, very hard to go after these organizations in Mexico when that's happening. Now, I don't know anything about a particular bribe to the president except I saw that allegation. But we do know that money was flowing to officials. And so what this makes really important is that you have an effective and independent justice system that can investigate these things, bring people to trial. That has not been particularly the case in Mexico. Their justice system works slowly. There have not been big corruption cases that have been brought. That's one of the promises of the new president, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, that he's going to really go after corruption. They've announced a few new cases of corruption. But what you really have to have are big, high-level officials being held accountable if there is indeed evidence they got payments from drug groups or from others for public contracts or other things. Who holds them accountable? Us? U.S. as somebody that's trying to have a trade relationship with them? Or is it Mexico's government holding them accountable? It ultimately has to be Mexico's government. But if if the money or if there's comes to the u.s or if there's property purchased in the u.s then the united states can take action against that money from corruption got it and we have in fact brought cases against governors and others in mexico who have transferred questionable funds let's say into real estate in the united states for example so that we could if they do if they do that, if it passes through our system, we have uh, authority to go after it. So if Peña Nieto, President, former president of Mexico, Peña Nieto, buys a property in U.S. and we feel a strong urge to want to investigate him because we think he was paid off by El Chapo, then we could. We'd, we'd have to have more than the urge. We'd have to have some evidence, evidence that he actually got paid off. But we have done that with other Mexican officials. We, we have done that. Because we have gotten the the evidence and the testimonies in some cases of witnesses who help facilitate the money transfers. Let me ask you, uh, what do you think about whistleblowers? Are they good for the world? Are they good for well, the country? I, I think they are good for the world. I think we do need to have people who are willing to speak up and we do need to protect them when they speak up and their evidence is, is proven to be good evidence, You know, not just trying to retaliate against somebody. It, I think it is valuable. So you think WikiLeaks, what they do is good for the world? Do you think it's good for U.S.? Well, in, in a sense, what I'd say is I wouldn't quite call that 
whistleblowing. I would say that's just putting all sorts of stuff out there that wasn't public and making it public without any thinking through what are the effects of that going to be. What I think of a whistleblower is somebody that comes into a prosecutor and says, look, this bad thing is going on. Here's some evidence and I'm willing to testify about it. That's not going out to the public and just saying, here are all these secret files that we don't think there should be any secret activities going on, so we're going to publish them. That's a different thing. Got it. So you're for whistleblowers, you're not for WikiLeaks and what they're doing. Yes. You think they're going to slow down at all? I think it, it is slowing Slow. down because people are they're getting blowback. People are saying, wait, well, this is too much. Why are you doing this? You know, are you just trying to destroy and not necessarily bad things? Now, it is one thing to find a scandal, to find corruption, to find something illegal going on, publicizing that. It's another thing just to publicize things because What's the difference? it's not public. What's the difference? Well, one, you're breaking the law. You're doing something, you're breaking a... a like emails, if they're rules. publicizing emails, if they're publicizing a communication with me and somebody else and it has to do with the government and I did something that I broke the law, is that considered whistleblowing or is that considered sharing information that could potentially hurt a country? Well, you'd have to look at the specifics, I think, of what was shared and what was, what, what laws were being broken and what you were doing. Yeah, I, I'm asking that question because I wonder how much of that's going to go on, go on in the next election that we have. Yeah. I wonder because, uh, you know, I think this is going to be a very ugly one that's coming up. And I think moving forward, it's going to get uglier and uglier. I don't think it's going to get any more diplomatic and, oh, I respect my opponent, but this is what I believe in. I don't think we're in that era. No, I think you're right that socially we're redefining what is privacy, what should be private, what needs to be protected. What shouldn't be protected? What's fair play to bring up? And I think that is changing. We've seen it change over this last decade. It's going to change some more. And I think you're, get, you're getting both some reaction to too much of that. Um, but we haven't really defined what's, what are the new social norms here. And we have all these actors from all over the world intervening everywhere. And they're not going to stop, though. And, and they're not going to stop. They're not going right. to stop. They're just going to get bigger and bigger. It's so hard to catch them, though. Because it's so, it's, it's, it's massive. You're not dealing with three or four. You're dealing with so many of them. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a, you know, it, it, when you pay to watch a good fight, you know, a good boxing fight, I think if they put the debates on pay-per-view, I think it would sell so much if they did it this time, whoever it's <laughs> going to be. I mean, if it's going to be Bernie or Biden or whatever, uh, uh, person, Elizabeth Warren that comes up to go up against Trump, it will be very entertaining. Because I know the last one was. Venezuela, are you, do you have any opinions about what's going on with Venezuela and what the long-term uh, solutions would be for the folks of Venezuela? I know a lot of friends from Venezuela in our company. We have a lot of people that are Venezuelans that work. I myself did a video on Venezuela, and it's a concern when you see how they don't have vitamins, they don't have food. They're going through really tough times, and a lot of them are leaving to Colombia or Peru. What is the long-term solution for us to address someone like Maduro who is not willing to work to allow the free election taking place. What's the long-term solution for the folks of Venezuela? Well, you're, you're exactly right that it's a horrible situation. Three and a half million refugees, a lot of malnutrition in the country, lack of medical care, horrible situation. On the other hand, nobody is willing to step forward and say there's a, a military solution here. Um, and part of that is there's part of it what justifies in intervening in another country. Part of it is recognition 
he still has a lot of support, not just from the military, but from the militias, the Chavista militias, that are armed in that country. So the solution that people are trying to pursue, I think, is in, in principle right, which is you find ways to increase the pressure on them. And you try to reduce the resources they have available to pay for what they're doing in their government. And that you get to a situation where either they decide they're going to leave or they're happy to negotiate a way to leave and a transition maybe to an internationally supervised election. But I don't think this is going to happen quickly. It is going to be necessary to have a constant effort to look at ways by the regional countries, by other international countries, to increase that pressure. And that probably means we get back to China here. It probably means working China, working Russia, working Cuba to get them to stop buying Venezuelan petroleum to increase that pressure. You think that would cause him to say, okay, I give up? I think it would make it a lot harder for them to run the country because they would have less income to actually pay their soldiers, their militia, and that, I think, would open the door. I don't see another solution. What's another? What's, what do you see? As well, I mean, you, you know the whole saying goes where it's like, you know, we're not everybody's mother. We're not here to take care of everybody. We should stay out of people's business. It's like, hey, if people are going through marital issues, just kind of leave them alone. Let the husband and wife resolve. But if there is domestic violence and it's getting pretty ugly and you know it and you see it and you hear about it, should you get involved and say, Johnny, listen, man, if you hit her, I'm sorry. I got to get involved. I, I just natural instinct. It's kind of like what Maduro is doing to some of his people. It's a different form of hitting them because they're not being fed. These are young kids that are eating rotten meat. So you sit and wonder, should we get involved and be a little bit more proactive about this? Or should we just kind of sit in the sideline and say, it's Venezuela's problem, it's Central, it's South America's problem. Let them figure it out. It's not our problem. Maybe somebody that's coming out, the gentleman that's uh, currently in Colombia, uh, uh, Guido, I believe, maybe he's going to do something about it, but let their election take place for itself. So do you think we should get involved and do something about it, whether it's military or any other kind of support? I don't think we should get militarily involved. I think that it would take so much force and be such a long intervention that it wouldn't have the support of the American people. But I do think we need to remain economically involved with diplomacy, with more sanctions, with trying to cut off those resources and finding new ways to cut off those resources, for sure. And we have to do it with others. We have to have an international coalition that gets stronger and stronger. Still believe, you still think we need it. China, we need Cuba, we need these guys to well, participate to help well, us out? Well, we need to figure ways to get them to stop supporting that regime. It's going to be hard, but it would be very hard to militarily intervene in that country. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's like, uh, it's almost where it's a Pablo, except he runs the country. Yeah, no, you know, it's, it's hard. It's a Pablo that's running the country. So it's uh, uh, not the usual dynamic we're used to. In, uh, maybe we are used to a little bit of it, but we, we didn't do much about it back then. Anyway, so last but not least, uh, it, you got a project where you're working on future workforce with AI, and uh, you see a lot of people concerned about what AI could do and how uh, jobs are changing. You know, we have to reposition ourselves. We have to learn different things. So, what are your thoughts with how AI is going to affect the future of uh, 
economy and job placement? Well, I think probably we're going to see about 30% of, on average, everybody's job change over the next five to 10 years. Some jobs are going to be completely eliminated. Some new ones are going to be created, and then others are going to be reinvented. And so if we don't get smarter about the mix of private sector business models, education, and education coming into the workforce and while you're in the workforce, and then government policies that help support that, we're going to suffer some of the same problems we've seen over this first 15 years or so of this decade with a lot of people feeling left behind, getting pushed out of the workforce, being politically disgruntled. We, we need to get ahead of it right now. One recent study found that the same parts of the country that got hit by the uh, first decade of job losses are going to be hit again when AI comes in. It's going to be these traditional manufacturing areas, on average, that are going to be hit harder. So unless we change our approach, we're going to relive that same kind of pain. So what I've been working on are a number of specific ideas of how governments, the education sector, and, the, and private companies can start working nationally at state levels and then locally to really train people as part of just the way you do business. So for all the entrepreneurs and business people watching your channel, it's building into their model. I'm just going to have to count for sp spending money to invest in my human capital, to give them retraining when we get new technologies. Sometimes it might be a week, sometimes it might be a month. Depends on the business. And I'm going to have to be supportive of working with that local community college or university that they actually give the courses that are going to make people good workers for me. They can't just do English literature, as important as that is, or history, or those straight business classes. They really have to know what kind of technology is coming through, where business But aren't they slow? Aren't colleges slow to adapt with what's needed to teach? They are. I mean, if there's a criticism of colleges, if there's skill set that's needed today, we're not going to get it as a class for four years. That's right. So that's why we, we what I think is we have to establish these, these active interactive councils between government, education, and business in different localities. It's something that can be done regionally to be talking about this on a regular basis so people are reinforcing the need to change so they can do it more quickly. And it's the same way for business. You know, business traditionally, if I need somebody new, I'll hire that person new, and if these people don't have the skills, thank you for your service. I think that's going to have to change in a sense, as it already has in Germany and Japan. They build that into their business model that, sure, some people leave, but they're really training their workers along the way. So when that new technology comes in, when those robots come in, when the machine learning starts, they, they train those workers, and that's just part of the expense of doing business. It's being more competitive to do that. Yeah, it's going to be, a, 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 again, with AI, I think private sector is going to be uh, those who adapt and adjust quickly will have the edge. But I also read a lot of people say, experts say that AI is not going to have a big effect for a long time. Uh, and when it does, you know, those who adjust and adapt quickly will benefit from it. Those who don't are, are going to take a hit, but it's not going to be the next five, ten years. There are some experts that are saying 30, 40 years 
is when it's really going to happen, but nobody knows. We're going to see what's going to happen. Now, there are a number of studies, the World Economic Forum, Accenture, you know, a number of the other manpower groups and stuff look at it, and they say, no, you're really going to start feeling it over the next five and ten years. So you, if you're smart, you just start changing your system now. and You get ready. Oh, I think it's better to anticipate it coming. Right. I think it's smarter to anticipate it coming so you're not surprised. The last thing you want to do in business is to be surprised. Exactly. We've seen a lot of companies do that. And uh, uh, there's many, many cemeteries filled with companies like Blockbuster, Kmart, and many other ones that are buried there. So some of the areas, for example, you think, well, some of it is on-the-job learning, apprenticeship. But there are things like credentials. Like when you're going to hire somebody, what does that credential mean? So there are a lot of things you can do to make those credentials more, uh, have more confidence in them, to be shared more widely. You can have data of the markets that's more transparent and more readily available for all the businesses so they know, gee, over in New England, they have an excess of these engineers that we need. Let's, get, let's reach out there and get them. There are things you can, governments can do to make that data more available. So there are a whole bunch of things you can do to make this a smoother process. And that's what we're looking at. I think the wind either got excited or got upset at your uh, uh, feedback about AI, but we're going to find out next five to 10 years what happens. Tony, thank you so much for being thank a guest you. on Valuetainment. A pleasure. Appreciate I really you. enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.